ladies and gentlemen, loyal listeners, if you've come here looking for the newest episode of Running Up the Downstairs, a podcast with your host, me, Josh Finkelman, then you are in the right place. It's new episode day here in the downstairs, and it's our 11th episode. That's right. My sweet, sweet baby is the big one one, and we're talking to Dylan Reibling, a documentary filmmaker and multimedia director who I also happen to go to film school with. So we spend a little bit of time catching up, and then we talk all about the amazing things that Dylan's been up to since then, including installations at Toronto's Nuit Blanche, short films in festivals all over the world, and a documentary film called Looking for Mike, which was nominated for a Canadian Screen Award. Pretty amazing all around. I think you're really going to like this conversation. I just wanted to, as always, thank Ian Campbell for our theme music and Ted Peters and the Gumbo Yeah Yeah for the music during the little mid-conversation advertisement that we have. So with no further ado, my conversation with the always interesting Dylan Reibling. And this is episode 11. Welcome to the Downstairs. With me, I have Dylan Reibling, who uh, we go way back to uh, film school, which is almost 20 years ago now. So I won't, uh, it ages us severely. But I was thinking about this the other day. It was like eight, no, no, it was more than that. It was 22 years, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, which is crazy. Um, and we we fell off, I would say, I guess, off each other's radar pretty quickly, um, except for Facebook. And then um, you have been working with uh, my buddy, Alad, um, for a bit. And it was so funny because he, he told me and I was like, oh, that's crazy. Like, such a small world. Um, but that's the world. You guys are filmmakers and, you know, you guys are working together. So it makes, it makes sense. But um, that's why I reached out. And it's amazing you're able to join us for this. Um, so thanks. Uh, and yeah. yeah, no, it's uh, it's a pleasure to talk to anybody. These that days. is true. That is true. Today is, I think it's day, we were just talking before we started recording, but uh, today is something like day 52 or 54 or something along those lines. Um, and it's, it's insane. It's a global trauma that I think uh, that we haven't seen the edges of yet. But it's interesting, we were talking before we started about, uh, about documenting it and sort of staying in the moment and like, uh, and using it as a, I guess as a, as a thing to explore other like human nature and stuff. So um, yeah, like what kind of things are you, what do you, what are you been doing during the pandemic? Let's start there. Well, so I've kind of, I've kind of been thinking about uh, the roller coaster, the pandemic, because like I came in strong, like I came in hard to the <laughs> pandemic of like, okay, I'm going to do uh, all this work. I'm going to, uh, uh, I'm going to learn Spanish. I'm going to uh, learn how to play the drums. I was going to, I had a bunch of arts council grants that I had to finish off. And so I came in like super hard the first couple of weeks and then realized like, Oh no, I'm going to drive myself crazy uh, <laughs> with that, with all that stuff. Luckily having like the deadlines, like grant applications and stuff is pretty good for like just giving you something to do but I've handed in like last week was uh, the last grant application. Uh, and so now that, that like all the, the big obstacles are over, I'm starting to hit the like manic 
phase yeah. of the <laughs> pandemic where I'm like, all right, I'm going into my filing cabinet. I'm going to digitize every one of my files. So I get, and I've been wanting to do that for a while. And, and it seemed like, yeah, this is a great idea. So I've, I've got like piles and piles of boxes around me of just like files and stuff like that. And as soon as I started doing it, I was like, oh, this is a bad idea. <laughs> There's nothing like joy. It, it did not spark <laughs> joy. I mean, number one, my stuff doesn't spark joy, but getting rid of it also does not spark joy. The actual like task of like scanning stuff in and like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hit the wall at some point, but I feel like, yeah, I've, I've hit the, the, the manic phase. So that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, for the, for the home stretch, it'll be, uh, it'll make things a little more interesting. I know uh, I completely agree. I, I kind of went the opposite direction. Like when the pandemic started, I was like, okay, this is like, it started like the first two weeks were like vacation times, like not vacation times, but sort of like this, this idea of like, okay, this is a new normal. So now I have to get my head around that. And then I hit like the two week mark and I was like, oh my God, like, okay, now this isn't going away. So now I need to figure out a way to make this um, like long-term. And so I started adding little things into my like, you know, sort of creating this fictional daily routine, which I didn't stick to, but did stick to at the same time. Friends and I, we have a, we have a, we do a zoom call like every afternoon and stuff. So we've been pretty consistent on that. So there's a nice, like there's always a nice schedule and then work started throwing things in. Cause you know, you can't get paid and do nothing, I guess. So um, all of a sudden there were like things and now I'm like, and you know, I'm sort of like weaving in and out of stuff that I don't want to do that I have to do. And so I found this, now I found this nice sort of uh, balance where, you know, there's a mix of like stuff that I have to do mix of like planning groceries ahead of time. Like I'm cleaning. Um, but it's funny because it's weird. I'm getting a lot of like, you know, adult stuff that I just never bothered with. Cause you know, I was out, I was working. I didn't, you know, you don't have responsibilities. Why are you, I don't have to clean the kitchen every day. I can do it every other day or whatever. Right. Um, but what was really funny is that now that like at the beginning, I had the same experience. My mom gave me a bag of old shit, like schoolwork, right? Like from public school and, you know, gung ho dove right into that bag halfway through, found a bunch of cool stuff, made an Instagram post out of it, which I was you know really into. And then, yeah, it's, I was like, that's half. I'm going to need to spread this out. It's only one shopping bag of like, you know, it's like this much or whatever. And I, uh, yeah. And I, it's still there it's sitting in a, on a shelf and I'm like, I guess I could go back to it, but you know, now I found this path. Um, but I mean, we all have that, like all that stuff we've been sort of carrying around with us for a while. What's the oldest thing that you've uncovered? Uh, one of the most interesting, because I've got like old stuff. I haven't even gotten to that. This is mostly like uh, the last 20 years kind of stuff. Uh, I found this really charming letter. Uh, one of the, After first year, uh, I took like my first trip uh, like road trip with a buddy and we went down to San Francisco in his car and uh, I found this letter that I had written to my friend who was looking after my room in my apartment at the time and I totally forgot that I had written it um, and it was just like a, a like a really special snapshot of like uh, number one it detailed all the stuff about the house that I lived in like the really crappy it was this apartment you know the free times cafe Oh yeah. 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 It was like a couple doors down from there. So I lived in one of those like shop houses. Oh. Uh, uh, so it was like this really crappy rundown apartment that I paid uh, or room that I paid $300 a month for, but it just, it just sort of sucked me back uh, like into the matrix of, of like what, what, where I was living, my relationship with my friend. It, like it was a really kind of like touching thing that I found. It doesn't, it won't mean anything to anyone else, but just sort of, 
the fact that I, I had this like really in, and it was a long letter too. Like I look, I think about a note that I would write for a friend if I was gone for like a, like a couple of weeks or an email I'd sent to someone, it'd be like a paragraph at most. But this letter was like two pages, like full, it's taken me an hour to write. I don't know. But yeah, so that, that was, that was one of the more interesting pieces, but I, for the most part, it's like accounting stuff. And like, like I lived in Montreal for a year in, 2003 to 2004 and i still have my gas bill and part of me is like oh i can't get rid of that gas bill what if they come after me or something i'm like no no if they haven't come after you uh, in the last 20 years i think you're probably safe but uh i mean if they were ever to come after me i like throw i all that stuff i i leave in a pile for like weeks because i mean i don't have a ton of expenses in that like that i need to hold on to receipts and stuff but i always find like banking statements and like my biggest concern is that it's got my information on it so i'm like oh i gotta tear this up into like tiny little pieces because it's been a couple of months i'm like if they ever come after me i'm it's i'm just gonna be like look at my bank account y'all figure it out i'm not 100 yeah. percent sure what's happening here um but it's interesting that that you the, the letter part because you were saying how like it might not be that interesting to other people but i find that the most interesting stuff to me is the stuff that like gives me an insight into my life at the time like when my mom told me about this bag of of stuff she was kind of like not dismissive about it in the sense like it didn't mean anything but she was like yeah it's i mean it's just schoolwork from when you were a kid and now that i have these nephews that um you know they range from like you know two to five or whatever. And I'm watching them sort of be people and, and have conversations. I'm like fascinated by what I was like at that age. And so just the idea of being able to like read stuff that I wrote or like see how my brain worked back then. Like it's, it's fascinating to me. I, I understand what you mean about how other people might not as, as much, but like I get that. Um, and then the letters, do you remember writing plain letters for people and stuff? And like, uh, that kind of thing. Like it's, it's such a dead art now I feel like is, you know, I'm, it's, it, it's actually interesting. One of the things that I came across was something I did maybe like 10 years ago. So I guess 2010, 2011, I went to the Canadian Film Centre. They had uh, a media lab. They still have the CFC Media Lab. And I did their interactive art and entertainment program. It was like a six-month program. Oh, shit. Sorry. That's me. Sorry, audience. It's, uh, I thought everything was on silent, but it was not. All right. Never mind. Josh is very appearance. popular. No, that was my, my nephews heard I was talking about them and they are calling me repeatedly now. Um, that's all right. It's just real life, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's, you were saying. So, so yeah, so I went to the Canadian Film, Film Center Interactive Lab, six months where you do a lot of uh, studying and then you uh, build a prototype, uh, like an interactive prototype on whatever format or media you choose. And so um, the group that I was working with, we were all really interested in these ideas of memory and tactility and very much like that shoebox that you have under your bed that has all your memories, all your keepsakes, all your photos. Uh, and so we did a lot of like research and studying around uh, these ideas and we did sort of like user testing and like research amongst people. And so uh, we asked people to send in text messages that were meaningful to them. Cause we were really interested oh, in this cool. idea of like, how do, how do you have a memory, like a, a digital keepsake of a memory? Like if, uh, if you have a photograph, it's very obvious what that that's about, but a handwritten letter says so much more than the actual text of the handwritten letter. It's like, 
what kind of paper is it on? What's your handwriting like? How is it folded up? Like all this stuff carries with it. Like a, like people hang on to concert tickets mm-hmm. for decades because there's something special about, like I can tell anyone that I went to that concert, but having the actual ticket in their hand is super interesting. Uh, so it's actually, so as I've been going through these files, I found that all these text messages that people had sent us, like text messages that had meaning for them. And so I was going through all these text messages and they are like 99% indecipherable. Yeah. Like some, I, I like, I know who sent it and I know who received it, but the text means absolutely nothing to me, but it's so like, you could tell that it was like imbued with such like emotion and like heartfelt like uh, feelings. Um, so it's been interesting. I, like I did run across that file and it was kind of a good reminder of sort of like the physical, like the importance of physical and tactile nature, which might be why we're all in this pandemic and just like all kind of freaking out because there's nothing that you can touch that isn't inanimate. Or on but, a screen uh, of some sort. Yeah. So um, to give a, a little bit more context, so what we ended up doing with that uh, project uh is um, we devised a system that allowed you to turn your text messages that you want to save. We were like, okay, well, obviously text messages have meaning, um, but there's no way to capture it in the way, like you change phones and you lose your text messages or whatever. So how can we preserve these memories? So we built a a contraption that turned uh, your text messages into physical objects and so we worked with this company i think they were called limbics i'm not sure they're probably not still around or maybe they are but basically they had developed this system that could it was for twitter i think but we used it for text messages but it could read the 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 content of the text and determine the emotional content like is it an angry text is it a funny text is it like a confused text oh cool so we used that backend to set out a bunch of parameters and change. And so what it would do is it would take the text message, determine the emotional content, use that to, to turn uh, that text message uh, into a piece of origami. Oh. So it determined the shape and the color of the text message. And it would send you uh, a PDF of this piece of paper that the only way you could reconstruct your text message was to fold this colored sheet of paper into wow. this. Yeah, no, it was, it was really That's cool. Amazing. What was that? Yeah. What was the, where, like, where was that? What was that for? So we, that was for the, it was just a prototype that we built. Uh, we ended up, um, we did a spinoff version because we were pretty happy with the end results. Um, but there was no way to sort of turn it into anything other than like an art project. So we ended up doing sort of a similar uh, project that did the same thing for tweets. So we did something like directly for tweet and then we installed that at uh, Nuit Blanche, I think in 2011. So the idea was what we did was over the course of the night, we would scrape Twitter for any mention of Nuit Blanche in Toronto. And then we used that we we used uh, this 
scraper to scrape those texts and determine the emotional content of those tweets. Uh, and then it fed into a series of printers that we had going and depending on uh, what the emotion was, it would print out a different colored sheet of paper. Oh. And we had this team of people folding these origami birds based on the tweets. Each, each tweet was on the back of a, on a, of an origami bird. And then we built this forest filled with like all these birds these origami birds. And so you could look at this forest where every, where all these trees were filled with these or, origami birds. And you, just by looking at this forest, you could see uh, like, oh, most of the tweets are red. So it's affectionate or some of the tweets are yellow. So they're confused. So it's kind of like this fun art project that uh, uh, was really fun to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Where, where in the city was that? That was in the Mars center. Oh, wow. Oh, that's yeah. dude. That's very. It's it, that's an interesting segue because I when we were in school, you, the um, I always remember you. I was living at my mom's house, and so I never felt like not necessarily part of the 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 class. I, I mean, I was. We all, you know, everyone was friends and all that sort of stuff. But I remember like when we had to do documentaries, um, which is probably a good segue here. But you did the one where uh, the guy stayed up for three days. Was that the? Was that you guys? Oh, that wasn't me. That was. That was, uh, that was oh no. That was Jordan and Zach. Um, yeah. It was called Tired, I think. And basically, yeah, they kept the guy awake for three oh, hours. I thought that was no, see, 20, 22 years later. It gets, it gets fuzzy. Uh, but I mean, it, the, the, the point still applies because everything that I see you do has like this very, um, I guess you want to call it outside the box sort of uh, mentality. I've always been sort of really interested in the way you think in terms of like this stuff. Because I've... I've creepily followed you i guess on facebook that's how we all i guess sort of stay abreast of each other right and all the projects that you always post i'm always like wow it's really interesting um like the reason i reached out to you for this ultimately was because you put up the 24 hour um uh Dolly, yeah. and it was and i watched it for like probably 15 minutes like i woke up one morning it just popped up and i was just like scrubbing through it because i was just part of it was like i wanted to understand what was like what was going on. And then the other part of it was just, it was sort of um, in like, it, it was addictive. You just kept watching it, watching it. So I was curious, where did that come from specifically? But like in general, do you find that the stuff that you're interested in tends to be um, in a specific, like it's interesting to say that you're, you think outside the box, but do you find that, um, that that's almost too, like does that pigeonhole you a little bit? Sometimes when you're thinking of stuff, like you want to try to come up with something that fits that, oh, it's outside the box criteria or are you just like whatever interests me, interests me? That's actually a really good question. Um, and it opens up into like a broader thing. For years I was like, I think about, there's nothing we want more in this world than to understand who we are. And it's also for whatever reason, the hardest thing to get access to, if that makes sense. For years, I was always trying to figure out like how I work and what I do and, and just terrorizing friends of mine by like interrogating them about uh, projects that have either been successful or unsuccessful and like, why did it work? Why did it not work? Um, and I, the, the, I made this one film and a friend of mine was like, oh, that's a very Dylan project. And I hounded him for years of like, what does that mean? Can you define it so I can actually do that thing? Right. But then that, it, it's funny, like that gets you into rec rec 
recursive loop of like trying to do the thing that you do might actually be getting you further away from the thing that you do. And so I struggle with that a lot of like trying not to overthink what I want to do. So that this is this is not this is not very good content for anyone listening to the <laughs> podcast. But I will say, so a couple of years ago, I um, there was a job I really wanted at this think tank in New York City, and uh, it was a very tough um, uh, interview process or like application process. Yeah. And it was one of the one of these ones where uh, you had to get letters of recommendation, okay, from people. And uh, I did that thing that you should never do of like. So I got three letters of recommendation, which I'm very very happy to have gotten. But I peeked into one of the the envelopes and I and I <laughs> saw what the what the letter of recommendation was because they didn't seal it or whatever. And it actually was really good. Like, like, I think it sort of like scratched an itch, this like need to like figure out how my brain works that, we, that I think we all have. Um, but basically the, the person who recommended me was just like, Oh yeah, no, he's done good work and blah, blah, blah. Like, so, like all the like typical stuff. And she's like, but his like primary uh, characteristic is curiosity. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. I am just a curious person. I was like, so for, for, 24 hour dolly that originally started as a 12 hour dolly. And that actually was at Nuit Blanche the same year as that tweet sculpture that I did. So I was doing two things at once. Uh, but I, I'd seen a bunch of art that I was really interested in, like durational art. Do, do you remember that film? What was it called? The Clock? That art installation? They played it down at the power plant. Uh, why? That's, yeah, that. Sounds very familiar, but I can't picture it. So it's this Christian Markley piece where basically it's a 24 hour film okay. uh, composed out of clips of other films. But, and so you could, how it's screened is that they screen it 24 hours a day. So they play, played it at the power plant uh, 24 hours a day and you could go down any time of day. Uh, and the interesting thing was that whatever time of day you went to see the film, the clips on screen would reference films uh, that had mentioned that time of day. So if it was like 4.15 in the afternoon, it would be a clip from a Hollywood film at around 4.15 in the afternoon. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was great. So I went to see that. I went to see it, I think I went to see it three o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock in the morning. And so some of the fun stuff that was on screen during that time was like uh, the uh, in Pulp Fiction when Harvey Keitel comes to clean up the body. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. that's that all happens at like six fifteen in the morning or whatever. So was it the whole scene? Like, was it a whole scene kind of thing? Like you would, or was it just it, clips? It, it was. It was like it was the scene, and then it was all hinged around uh, the the time of day. Right, corresponded. So it was maybe like a couple of minutes, but you got a little bit of feel of the scene, but you also got to feel what it was like at that time of day that the scene oh, happened. Cool. So I was super interested mm-hmm. in this. Like, I, like I, there was a couple other like pieces of durational 
art that were super interesting to me. Um, there was a piece from the, um, uh, the first Nuit Blanche that I went to see in like a parking garage. That was like that one of the key moments, it was like a film projected in this parking garage uh, all night long. And there was a key moment in it that had a dolly shot. And so I was putting all these pieces together and I was like, well, what would it mean to like have like a, like a, like a dolly shot that went on for like an, like an extended period of time. And, and, this was also around a little bit after, but do you remember Russian Ark? So uh, this, sounds familiar again, but no. Uh, it, was a, it was like 2001, 2002. It's like a Russian film that was all done in one take. And it was very revolutionary at the time. It's, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. The yeah, so, yeah. 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 So it was just all these pieces coming together. And I was like, oh, you know, like, I love dolly shots and whenever I can f- put them into a film, I'll do it. Well, what happens if you do a dolly shot for tw- 12 hours straight was the original one. And then, and then a couple of years later I was able to do a 24 hour one. So it was just like, how does this work? Why does it work? Like what, what's going on in this thing at the time? And now I'm interested, like, what's it like to watch it? Um, I did a screening of 24 hour dolly with a live, with live band accompaniment which was super interesting. I feel like that might be a way to exhibit it, but yeah, it's just a curiosity. Like how do things work? Yeah, no. So I, when I saw that, I was just like, I was like fascinated by it. Cause I love that kind of stuff. Like, um, uh, like artwork that just sort of is in the midst of stuff and you can kind of dip in and dip out of it. It's, I always find it very interesting. Like Nui Blanche is something that I, I quite enjoy for that reason. Cause there's always like weird little things sort of within it. Um, but it leads to an interesting question because we both started out in the same place. We both started out at York's film program um, to varying degrees of success. Um, so I want you to think of like, I've been asking everyone this cause part of like this whole uh, call it a project or whatever is my feeling like that. I don't, you know, I don't do a lot of stuff. And so, you know, surrounded by all these people who do, you know, really interesting things and like, you know, um, varying levels of success, but like, you know, different drives and that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm really interested in the idea of, uh, of like what people think that they are in the sense of like, um, you know, like a business card, not that that's really the world, I guess that any of us really live in, in that sense. But like when, if you think to like 17, 18 year old Dylan, right before first year, you know what I mean? Like when you thought of yourself at this age now, like what did you think you were going to, like, what were you going in there to do? Like, was it, I'm a filmmaker. This is, this is what I want to do. Or was it like, I, this is what interests me the most now. And I'm going to, you know, roll with that. Uh, I remember for me, it was either going into film school or going into engineering. I was either going to be a filmmaker or an engineer. Uh, Very similar. Yeah. It, well, I feel like I'm starting to like meld those two together. Cause most of the stuff I work on now is about technology. Sure. Uh, and so there's a connection cause a lot of the people that I, I track and I keep in contact with and I follow are like, think like engineers, which I think is super interesting, especially in this day and age. Uh, cause I think engineers are really shaping, uh, society, culture, politics, economics, all that, that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, it was either, it was either going to be, I was either going to be an engineer or a filmmaker and then, um, filmmaking felt right. I was making films with friends, stuff like that. Uh, and so yeah, film school, uh, ended up winning out. I, I, I think back to it now and I'm like, why did my parents let me do that? But, uh, uh, yeah, 
it's funny. I should ask them, why did, why did you, because if I had a kid now and he was like, mm, absolutely not engineering or filmmaking, uh, I would have well, been engineering like, and then make movies. Yeah. 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 It's funny because I have that, like, I mean, film school was fine. I think part of my, my struggle with it was more that I, I, I mean, there were a number of factors going on at the time. Like my, my dad passed when I was 18. So like it happened right before I went into school. So it was really just, I think part of it was I, I was probably treading water far more than I thought I was, but the dream was always make movies. So it was like, this is the only thing in front of me. It was like right when applications were out, like I blew an application for Ryerson, only found out about uh, Concordia like two years later that they even had a film program, which to this day still makes me angry. Um, but at the same time, like it was like York was the closest. I could stay home my mom like it was it just sort of was um it was there it, they accepted me and all that sort of stuff um and so I went into it kind of probably not in the right headspace um but I went into it very confident in th this is where I was going like this is what I wanted to do and it was it was a very binary idea like it wasn't uh it wasn't like oh I could you know maybe I'll do this and whatever it was like it's either I'm gonna be a filmmaker or I'm not um, and now I look back on it and I think like, oh no, the right decision would have been like something other than film and then going, I mean, as much as there is a right decision 20 years later, but um, going into something and then going into film later. And I remember having like calm arguments probably with my mom at the time about whether or not film school is the right thing. And it was, um, and I think it was just sheer force of will that put me there. But I've often, I've often thought like if I go back and, and advise, you know, my 18 year old self, it probably would have been like, you can probably learn how to make movies, but at the same token, what a different world at the time, right? Like, I mean, if I could have made movies on, I think about that a lot. Like I was, you know, we were almost 10 years too late in some ways because, you know, you were making movies at home with your friends before, right? Could you imagine what you could have done with, you know, an iPhone or a, you know, like premiere on a, on a laptop or whatever it was like, would have been a whole different world going in. Right. I mean, I don't know. I've got a bunch of different thoughts about that because maybe a couple of years ago, I would have agreed with you that, yeah, do something else and then get into filmmaking. Uh, part, part of why I might step back from that now is like, we are seeing this next generation of kids who grew up with iPhones and just grew up with all the tools um, at, at their hands. And I feel like the affordances of the kind of technology that, um, is in the hands of kids right now actually doesn't lead to Scorsese's, you know, yeah. like it leads to new and interesting and different things. Like there are some TikTok geniuses out there. There are some vine geniuses out yeah. there. There are Instagram geniuses out there. Um, is it the same thing that we were interested in? Not, not really. It's different. So I kind of feel like, I don't know. I like the, the tools are different, but they also change what you do with them. So, so I feel like that's part of it. And another, another thing I kind of think about is after, after undergrad, I went, I actually went to Concordia for grad school, Oh, nice! but I didn't do film production. I was out of money, <laughs> so I couldn't afford to do. Uh, so I did um, film theory and I mean, looking back at it, like you, you couldn't have like a, anything that uh, is less or is more divorced from the actual act of filmmaking than oh, film yes. theory. I know. Like if you want to start a film and uh, film career, like no one, no one needs to know 
you know, the ontological roots or semiotic <laughs> meaning of, of, of film theory or, or like the difference between neo-formalism and like structuralism. Yeah. Um, so that absolutely not needed. So, but it's probably one of the best things. It was the best thing for me and one of the best things, like it's informed so much of how I think rather than sure. giving me those skills. So I feel, so yeah, I don't know, but that's actually different than what you're saying. Cause you're like, eh, it's the skills that you don't really need. So why go to film school? But I kind of feel like York was good to like, I, I was able to experiment a lot. Um, I was a little less skills based at York and a little bit more like, okay, what are the different mediums? Let's see what we can do with these. Yeah, I find it really interesting. I, like one of the things, like especially talking to people and everyone's different experiences, like one of the things that seems that always seems to me, and it, I think it was probably far more cynical back when I was younger because I was, you know, younger and 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 not as able to see around the frust like frustration maybe and that sort of stuff. But I think one of the interesting things about people is that um, a lot of people find that like it's about who you connect with, you know, and having like uh, the 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 episode that's going to come out this week uh, is with a, a girl that I work with and she's a bit younger and um and she's got works with these uh guys who are her mentors and we talked a lot about like the idea of mentors and like the idea of having someone who is um I guess invested in your growth and development and like and for me it's always been a, a I always feel like that's one of the it can be it's not always but it can be one of the uh defining factors of someone's sort of growth as an artist right did you have any uh like do, did you have do you have currently like do you think of someone as a mentor like someone that sort of you know helped you that way or um or was it all like you just kind of found your way from place to place i mean i found my way from place to place and looking back at anything that i've done i, I feel as though um I've taken a very, I've, I've, I've made a bunch of very poor decisions in terms of uh, career pathways and stuff like that. Welcome to the uh, club. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's funny. Um, I'm in a weird position right now. Uh, for a while there, I was obsessed with finding a mentor, but sometimes, sometimes the harder you try for stuff like that, the less effective it is. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. I went to the screening years ago and, and the, the people, people, this is, this is a point that a lot of people debate me on, but um, there was this film showing at the Royal called Frownland a couple of years ago. It was one of the first sort of like mumblecore features is maybe like 15 years ago. Yeah. And the director came in, it was a very like affecting film is very very low budget it's a mumblecore film yeah. he shot it all on film with a, like uh with his friends and in found locations and so the acting is very stylized and weird and um and it's all these like really like weird st stories uh where people are like struggling to make connections and by the time you get to the end of the film it's it's very i found it very cathartic because it's it, it was very uh, it was a very tough film to watch, but then also very rewarding. And we had the most magical Q&A after the film. Basically, there was only like 20 people in the theater, and, he, and the director was there, and he kind of 
he kind of gathered everyone up in the first two rows. And so there's maybe like 20 of us there. And we just had this like really heartfelt Q and A and it was more like a, like a, like a feelings, like, like a therapy, uh, <laughs> mean, a therapy group. And one of the things he said that stuck with me was he was just like, like love is one of the only things in the world that the more you need of, of it, the less it's available. Like, if if you're if you're hungry, the the price of a loaf of bread doesn't change, right? Like you go to a store and a, but if you need love, if you need if you need something from someone, it actually becomes harder to get, right? And I, so some people agree with that and some people don't, but it, it's something that's always stuck with me. And I kind of think like there's nothing that would make me less wanting to take on someone to mentor than if they're really like pushing to yeah, be like, sure. but so all that having been said, um, I ended up working for a company, uh, that really, uh, sort of shaped, uh, who I am as a filmmaker. Cause the sort of the head of the company was a filmmaker, Canadian filmmaker that, uh, I admired very much and does, things makes films kind of in a way that I would like to make them uh, and had, was very supportive of me in my early years. It's sort of funny now because I, I recently brought a project to them and they're hemming and hawing on it. It's breaking my heart. Like, I, like I've got a project that um, I'm trying to get funding for and they're the perfect place to do it. This company that sort of mentored me in, in the beginning of my career and I brought it to them and it's the perfect fit and I can see it. And in a way I think they can see it too, but they're, they're hesitating and it's breaking my heart. I don't, I don't want to say who they are cause it's just it, like, I'm going through this right now. Yeah, it's yeah. very, very, uh, it's, it's, it's like a breakup. And at, at a certain point I just have to say to them like, like, okay, I think I got to, like, I, I think I got to start talking to other people, but are they, are they hemming and hawing because of uh, like the current situation, like world situation or was this, they've been hemming and hawing since before that? They've just been hemming and hawing because I think, um, I think, I think they like the idea and they think it's important and they, they, they it's just not a very sellable idea gotcha. for them. It's this project I've been working on for a bit. Um, uh, so mostly I work on uh, docs about technology now. And so I spend a lot of time in like hacker circles and especially hacker activist circles and working with hacktivists, uh, and tech, like anarchist hackers, that sort of thing uh crypto anarchists i spend a lot of time with um very complicated passwords i would have to imagine oh yeah i can tell you but i spent a whole day um i've got a whole password system i i i, I did that thing where i spent a whole day memorizing a pass phrase uh, like yeah. a like a 10 word long phrase that i that was generated through random dice throws and yeah, I, like i so yeah, so I have to I have to have my security on lockdown. Wow, uh, sure. uh, 
but uh, so I've been working on this project. There's sort of this new movement in technological activist circles towards decentralization. Okay. And basically the idea is that like increasingly, like we all, I think the original vision of the internet was supposed to be this like scattered um, decentralized system where it's hierarchy free and no one's in control and everyone can kind of speak their mind and there's no, there's no power dynamics. It's all just sort of this flat plane. But increasingly what we've seen is that um, control over the pipeline is, has been concentrated into uh, like literally like three or four companies, like 50% of the web uh, lives on Amazon web services. Uh, like their AWS servers, like chances right. are some chain, some portion of the chain between us lies on a, a Amazon web services. Uh, server. And 70% of the traffic that we see has been filtered either through uh, Facebook or Google. Yeah, that sounds right too. And then there's all sorts of infrastructure things of like internet service providers and government regulations that also dominate um, the platforms through which we communicate. And so there's been this push with uh, hacker anarchists uh, and, and people who are part of the decentralized web movement to create experimental new software and hardware that um, will build an internet that works outside of these power structures. Okay. So we share information peer to peer rather than through these centralized, through Facebook, through Zoom, through sure. uh, Google, stuff like that. Yeah. So, so uh, it's a very fascinating world, and the people who are building this technology are super thoughtful and dedicated to uh, uh, justice and digital justice in really fascinating and interesting ways. And it's a really important story to tell right now. And the company that uh, is currently breaking my heart is, is they're, they're the they're the company that has the, has done projects like this in the past. Oh, and then like, I've been developing this for like a while. I've been, I've spent a bunch of time. I went down to Silicon Valley for a month and just kind of, I spent like uh, a couple weeks out on an abandoned mushroom farm with a bunch of these hacker anarchists to like learn about the technology and the software and the community and stuff like that. And then I've uh, I spent, I spent a week, uh, at the Berlin Film Festival, they've got like a workshop, yeah. uh, and they helped me uh, develop this into like like a treatment or like a oh, cool con- conceptualized version of this film. And for whatever reason, it's 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 something. There's a huge anarchist hacker community in Berlin, and so there and there there is interest in Europe for a project like this. And uh, all, but in order to get this ball rolling, I need to get a, a Canadian production company interested. And yeah, it, I'm. We're so close, and I want to convince them, like <laughs> guys. But but I don't know. And so I'm I'm kind of in this lost world with these people who are my mentors. So getting back to your question, it's like, do, like do I believe in mentors? Do I not believe? I think. I don't know. I think everyone's different. I think some people can really get a lot out of that kind of relationship, but I think people can also get a lot out of just like partnerships with people who know equally as little as the person that they're working with, but have that like momentum in a certain direction. 
Yeah, does that make sense? No, no, totally. It's it's weird because I have this. I know for myself, like I've always sort of wanted that relationship, but like you were saying, you can't just chase it. It's not like uh, it's like dating or whatever. Like the more you want something, the less likely it's going to be attractive to someone else. But what I find interesting is that um, for me. The second that someone takes an interest in what I'm doing, I immediately stop thinking highly of their opinion to some extent. Like, it's very much like that Marx Brothers saying, like, I don't want to be a part of any club that wants me to be a part of it. I'd met this, um, I'd met this writer. She was uh, just through work or whatever. And we, you know, she was an older lady. She was probably in her like 60s. She was a memoir writer. So, I mean, not really in terms of like what I do, but someone who had published a number of books and she was someone who, you know, she had, we had, we were talking and she'd expressed interest in like reading what I had written and she gave me one of her books. And I was like, oh, it's cool. This is someone who, you know, is showing some interest. Okay, cool. No problem. It's exciting, I guess. So I sent her something I wrote and she was like, yeah, this is fine. Like it wasn't, she wasn't like overly, like I said, we weren't on the same page, like content wise. Like she was a mem- memoirist, I guess. And like, you know, I'm writing about like sentient balloons and shit. Um, but the, uh, but like she liked it and immediately I was like, well, I don't know. What do you know? You're writing about your own life, you know? And immediately it's just like, it, it felt less for me. And that's, I mean, that's, that's on me. That's something I'm, I'm definitely working on, but I find that one of the things that, um, that obviously goes along with sort of, you know, being your own, uh, being a freelance and doing this kind of work is, is having that confidence in yourself and knowing that your, you know, sort of take on something is, is, is valid or legitimate. And so one of the things I've been asking people a lot is, um, and we'll, we'll sort of take this into the, uh, do this and then go into the break kind of thing. But do you, when, when did you start to feel legitimate? You know what I mean? Like, if that makes sense, like I always try to, I always have trouble phrasing this exactly because it's such like this amorphous idea of, I guess it's sort of an idea of comfort in what you're doing. But like, was there a point where you went from being, I don't know, I don't want to say a beginner, but where you went from being someone who's like, um, hoping for validation, I guess, um, to being someone who's like, forget validation, this, like, come with me on this ride kind of thing. Oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I've got that. And I think most people struggle with that forever. I'm, con- I'm, I'm interested about your, this, this story with the memoirist first though, because well, did you lose interest in the project or did you lose interest in working with that person? It was more just in, it, I don't, you know, it's weird. It wasn't the project. Like I've, I have a very strange relationship with my own work in the sense of like given enough, given enough distance from anything that I write, I, I can see the value of it. But, and I think that's a writer thing. Like it's hard to see the value of your own work in the moment. Um, and that sort of thing. But with her, it was more of, um, I don't know, she's a really nice lady. Um, and I think I kind of flipped through her book and I was like, okay, well this is, it's, it's not me. Like it wasn't, it, we didn't have a, I guess a a work connection in that sense. Like it was, she was just a nice person who I I liked. And the second that she, I sort of saw what she did. I didn't care as much about her opinion, I guess is what ended up happening, which was, which is probably a, a a defense mechanism of of some sort that I'm, I'm sure I should explore in in, in some other way. But I find it interesting that it, it also is a bit of that imposter syndrome too, right? Like I think when you have some uh we'll call them credits to your name it seems to me from the outside that there is um 
I don't know. It just seems to me, I guess I've always looked at that and been like, I wonder if I would feel differently in that situation, you know? Um, and so I've always been interested in, in other people's, um, in other people's sort of, uh, feel for that. Right. Like I'll give you, I'll give you a good example. So I have a cousin who, uh, has four kids, right? My mom got remarried. I don't know, six or seven years ago. And at the wedding, I'm saying they're talking to, um, and he's an older cousin of mine. He's, uh, he's a teacher. He is, uh, I think his oldest is 19 now. Right. So like as adult, a human being that's close to my age can possibly be right. Um, and we're staying there talking and I'm saying to him, I was like, you know, I think at the time I was turning like 33 or whatever it was. And I was saying like, I don't feel like an adult. I don't, um, you know, I don't have the trappings of adult, what I always thought adulthood was and that sort of thing. And that kind of, and he looked at me and he said, I don't feel like an adult either. And I went, I was like, it was mind blowing because to me, this is, that's what like the, 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 the cheesy definition of adulthood is, you know, you have a career, you have a wife, you have a bunch of children, you have a home, you have all these responsibilities. Like it seemed to me that if anyone was going to feel like an adult, it would have to be someone in that sort of situation. And to hear him say he didn't feel like an adult at all kind of was like, well, there's no hope for me ever is <sighs> really ultimately where that, that leads you to. But it's the same sort of idea, I feel like. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying about, like, how, you know, what was 18-year-old Dylan sort of uh, uh, feeling for what he was going to do to now. It's like, how do you define yourself as, you know, in society? You know, like, for me, it's always been about, you know, trying to do the best you can and, like, you know, getting from point A to point B. And by the time you get to point B, you look back and you go, oh, shit, maybe I could have gone this way or whatever. But, like, you make the best decisions in the moment. Um, but I feel like when when I always wonder, do people outside of that, like, people who have credits, people who have, like, you know, you've been nominated for awards, you've gotten grants and stuff like that, like, do those trappings give you more of a sense of... Uh, belonging i guess uh, like la like does have you ever had that sort of imposter syndrome that you've had to struggle through or that kind of thing uh yeah definitely imposter syndrome it was weird because at the at the berlin film festival i was there with a bunch of there was 10 of us in this documentary workshop and i came in thinking like oh i'm like coming in as like the underdog of like okay i'm trying to get this weird techno uh anarchist thing off the ground and what became very clear or was made very clear to me uh like very quickly was i was everyone considered me the professional i was like guys oh you know we're do if i'm the professional we're doomed kind of thing but i don't know I, I i also think it's like a bit of a trap too because if you start thinking about that then you're not actually thinking about the important thing which is or maybe the, the most useful thing is thinking about the project that you're working on. Like that's really the most, like if you start trying to figure out how to, it's putting it like it's pushing the cart from behind kind of thing. If you're thinking about like, how does this, um, how, how does this manifest into me as like a fully defined person in the realm that I want to be or at least I found like anytime that I've tried to do something for strategic purposes that's always been my biggest failures interesting yeah like when you say, when you say strategic purposes 
Um, like, what do you mean by that? Like when, cause I always feel like freelancing, which is essentially what, you know, I, I would see, it sounds like to some degree what you're doing, not in the truest sense of freelancing where you're, you know, soliciting work from other people, but where you're pitching your own ideas and, and getting, you know, the whole pitch and, uh, process where someone else is giving you money to like do your thing there's a very real sense of like I think that's always been my struggle is I I don't I'm not a fan of that uh that sort of interaction like I don't and it, and it again it's my own I'm sure it's my own sort of you know things that I need to work through but there's always been this aspect of like I don't want to tell you how great this is. I just want you to see it and know how great it is, you know? And like the second that I start having to pitch it, my brain goes into this cycle of like, uh, well, if I have to tell you that it's good, then is it really good? And then I go back to it and then I'm like, okay, well, what do I, you know what I mean? So it's that, it's this weird sort of vicious cycle that I've, I know I've always struggled with, but I, that's why I always find it interesting where like the idea of labels and the idea of like how you, like what you see yourself as. And I always find it interesting when um, people have sort of, where say kind of things like where you're coming from, where it's the project that's the most important because that's all I, I think I've got, I'm at that place now. And as I've gotten older, but I know a lot of the struggle along the way was like that label and like, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I, I always like to ask people to find out because, because sometimes there's that moment where you look around you and you go, Hey, I'm actually doing this. Right. Which I imagine there would have to be some, something of that nature in, in your own experiences where you're, you know, uh, on a set or doing that kind of thing. Do you remember a moment like that where you kind of stepped back and went, Oh, this is, this is where I was going. Uh, I mean, so there's a couple things going on with what you're saying. One of the things that I think, uh, for you, and I was going to mention it with the, with the story with the memoirist as well. There's, there's also this like scary threshold or, spectrum of going from inside your brain into the real world that is terrifying and i think you can tell me if this is right or wrong for you but and it, it also sounds with the memoirist there was a bit of a just a difference in taste but every step away from the platonic ideal into your head into the actual making of the thing is scary because you're getting away from perfection right so i mean i think it's and this is a lesson i i'm keep trying to learn of like yeah it's actually about the process but as part of that the process should be driven from the platonic ideal in your brain rather than what you think the person on the other end wants i think Anytime I've tried to deliver something like, oh, this isn't an example that I would do, but like, like, a, like oh, I'm going to make a, like a Sundance film or something like that, or that's what I want. That, that's not really my bag. But anytime I've tried to do something like, oh, I want to do like a people pleaser this, or like, I, I want to do something, oh, that person got a lot of success out of that. I want to do that thing that's always been a disaster for me just because it's like, you're, it's not authentic and you're trying to do something. Um, that having been said, um, uh, I also kind of split my work up into two sort of categories. Either it's for me or for you, like for the TV stuff that I do. Right. If I'm, if I'm working for you, 
on a TV show. My goal is not to do is, is to make sure that I'm delivering something good and interesting for you. I'm giving you what you want. Right. I'm give, I'm bringing all my skills and ideas and thoughts and, and work and effort and stuff to it. But ultimately like the, the taste lies with you rather than with me sort of, or yeah, the impetus lies with me rather than you. So that's why I'm thinking like it's, you yeah, there's no choice, especially for projects that I work on, on on my own. Like it's it's gotta it's gotta be driven by the project and the process and and what's going on in my brain rather than um, what I think some amorphous audience is gonna want in the future. Sometime. No, fine. I don't know. Maybe that's what that may be a little bit vague, but <laughs> there it is. Oh, it's, it's great. Um, I, like I said, we're gonna take that into the break. We're gonna take a quick moment and get our get our. Ugh, can't wow blew that one right there nice segue into the into, the, into our one sponsor um they're going to talk to you for a second we'll be right back in just a moment you're listening to running up the downstairs sponsored by host josh finkelman's twitter and instagram accounts at kjosh radio for both that's the basic gist feel free to make it your own as long as the podcast name and mine st- oh it's <laughs> So we're here with Dylan Reibling, um, which you already know because you were listening to the other half of this uh, podcast. Um, and so we're in a part two. Um, and one of the things that you may or may not know about Dylan is that he is, it was a genie, right? Genie nominated. Well, it was a Canadian Screen Awards and they had right. just changed to Canadian Screen Awards. Right. Okay. So he nominated for a feature length documentary. Um, and I found this fascinating. It was one of those things where um, I really like Facebook's ability to creep on people that you haven't talked to in years because I read a lot of the stuff you were posting about it and I found the documentary very interesting. Um, but it came out of a real life experience. So why don't you go into a little bit about how that happened and, and, where real life took off into making a documentary. Yeah, well, this actually goes back to our York days because when we were at York, one of my jobs, my part-time jobs, was working tech support at this uh, computer company. And uh, so I was working working evenings and weekends at this this company. And while I was there, I got to be friends with this guy named Mike. Uh, he and I hit it off right off the bat. I mean, it was a small company, so uh, we all got to know each other fairly well. And especially in like startup culture, it's like everyone kind of does everything. So you're, you're kind of, you're, you're all, it, it, it's, it's like trial by fire. So we got to know each other pretty well, me and this, uh, uh, this guy, Mike. And especially because Mike was from uh, not too far from where, where I grew up. Um, I'm from a town called Baden, small town, southwestern Ontario. He was from Godridge, uh, which is uh, a little bit more west of uh, Baden. But I had family. My uh, uh, my great grandmother and great grandfather lived in Godridge, so I would go visit them every once in a while. So, and Godridge is like a pretty quaint little town. Uh, and uh, just holds a lot of memories. Uh, for me so it was like a really good basis for like building a relationship with someone especially like I like I was a small town kid who had just moved to the big city uh so having someone you could 
talk to about uh, about your hometowns and being small town kids is, is is a good is a good way to bond. Anyway, so I got to be friends with this guy, uh, Mike. Uh, we go out for beers, we hang out before or after work. Um, got to know each other fairly well. Uh, so much so, I'm not, just, I'm not even sure if this made this into the made it into the documentary. It's hard to differentiate life from the documentary at some point. Uh, but yeah, so basically what ended up happening was, uh, the company that we're working for, uh, got taken over. There was like a hostile takeover or something. And so a bunch of us were getting fired. And as we were getting fired, I was getting ready to go off to grad school in Montreal because school York, I was almost finished with. And, uh, Mike could see the writing on the wall and he realized like, okay, well, uh, I'm not going to be uh, at this company much longer. I need to come up with a backup plan. So his backup plan, he was just like, Dylan, like I'm inspired. You're going, you're going off to Montreal. You're going to start a new life. I kind of feel like I want to do the same thing. His jam was he was going to teach English overseas and he wanted to go to Germany for whatever reason. He wanted to teach uh, business English in Germany. So he needed a passport application uh and so he asked me to to fill out uh to be like a personal recommendation form or like a like a to vouch for him i didn't think about it twice right like i was like sure yeah no problem uh, and i actually thought it was kind of fitting because i knew more about his backstory than anyone else at work right just because i knew where he's from and i had that whole backstory anyway sure enough we both get laid off and we kind of drift apart. I don't see him for a while. We keep in contact by email, but things started drifting. And uh, I hadn't heard from him for, for like six weeks or something. And I got a phone call on my answering machine. And it's from a detective from the Toronto police. Right. Uh, okay. So I call up this detective and uh, I ask him, so sorry like i have no idea what's going on like why is a detective calling me yeah are you in montreal at this point still no i was still in toronto it was before i left from montreal and uh so i'm talking with this detective and he's he's like hey actually it's about your friend uh michael debussier okay what could it possibly be and i was like he's like yeah we found your contact information on his passport application it's like okay fine. And I guess in my head at the time, I was probably like, Oh, is this the vetting process? Seems a little weird. Like why would a detective call me? Why wouldn't it be like a, like a passport Canada person anyway, a a person. Um, anyway, so he starts asking me all these questions like, uh, how do you know him? Well, we know each other through work. Where did he grow up? Uh, uh, he grew up in Godridge. Where did he go to school? Laurentian. Like I, and I knew all this stuff. Yeah. And we went through like a catalog of every single thing uh, I knew about him. And then, and I could tell there was some confusion on the other end of the line. But the de- detective eventually said, he was like, well, uh, I'm not sure if you know this, but... Uh, uh, Michael uh, died a couple of weeks ago. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, his body was found in his apartment. It's like, oh my God. Well, uh, what's going on? Like, has, has his next of kin? Like, I had all these questions. Yeah, yeah. as you and, would. As you would. 
And the detective was like, well, what happened was we started going through his, uh, his personal affects and we found his driver's license and his high school diploma and his university diploma. And, and it all tracks back to what you're saying, uh, but it's fake. Everything, like his birth certificate is fake, his high school diploma is faked, his university degree is faked, uh, like his, everything that you, you just told me, uh, we have a paper trail of, and it's all fake. These are all fake documents. Wow. We don't know who this guy is. We don't know what, we don't know his real name, his real identity. We don't know where he came from. This, this guy doesn't exist. Uh, and so I, I was blown away, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And it was crazy to me because if you had to line up every single person that I worked with of like, most likely to least likely to be living under a fake identity. Mike, of course, would have been least wow. likely. He was, he was, he was like a very sweet, gentle, smart guy. Not, not an ounce of shadiness about him. So it was like a, it did a number on my brain. Like, yeah, like sure. you start to doubt things. Like, is it one of those things where you're like, Holy shit. If I, if I'm wrong about this guy, I'm wrong about everything. Oh yeah. So it's funny because I went into work shortly thereafter. No, I started a new job. It was the summer before I went off to Montreal. So I started a new job and I was talking to people at work. And in the back of my head, it was like, do I, do I know anything about them? Like, like is what they're saying real or not? And then eventually I went off to Montreal where I'm totally meeting all new people with, with no backgrounds and uh, like, or no verifiable background. So there was a like switch that was flipped in my brain for quite a number of years, actually, where I had a hard time. I could be friendly with people, no problem, but like trusting them and believing what they were telling me, there was, there was like a disconnect for me. So yeah, it was a pretty, it was a pretty intense experience. One that stayed with me for a while. And, uh, and it wasn't until years later, because I would talk to people about the story. Like once I kind of like got over it after enough sure. years had, had moved on, I was able to like talk to people because it's a fascinating story. It's a great story. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then having told it enough, I kind of realized like, actually this could be, this could be, uh, I had seen another documentary called uh, missing Allen about a missing person. Okay. And, and then there was a, there's a doc series, the staircase that I had seen that got me thinking like, Oh, you know, this is maybe something that's doable. Like I could, I could make a documentary about this and maybe in the case, in the process of making the documentary, I, I might be able to find answers that I wouldn't had I not uh, made the documentary if that makes sense. Like, yeah, yeah, the documentary yeah. is a really, really good uh, excuse to force you to do work that you wouldn't otherwise do. So, yeah. So how, um, how long after all that happened, did you like, what was the, what was the turnaround time until you started actually working on the documentary? Probably about 10 years. Oh, wow. 
I find it, I, this whole sort of situation with, with you and the documentary and the, the, the life experience, I find really interesting because you turned it into a documentary. Like you went nonfiction with it, which I mean, on the one hand makes absolute and complete sense because it's a mystery. There's like something that you can like something tangible to hold onto and like look into and dig into and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it, I think it highlights that the fact that like some people think nonfiction wise and maybe some people think sort of like fictionally like where I, I, I always feel like I would have tried to turn it into a, like into a, into a fictional novel or I would have tried to turn it into a screenplay or a play like I'm currently working on a play that's not based on my life per se, but definitely came out of a, uh, an experience I had with someone and it was, you know, now it's about ghosts and all this sort of weird stuff, but it's, uh, but it's, it came from that experience and like, and it's, I, I find that sort of, uh, that, that, I guess it's binary too. It's either true or it's not, but I find that decision process, um, really interesting. So was there a point where you were, um, were you was it always going to be documentary styles like have you always been more interested in um i guess let's call it the real world versus creating your own i mean i always feel like it's actually a perfect example because i feel like i i think it's actually a really tricky thing to make even though it's a real life event i think it'd be a very tricky thing to make a fictional film out of because it feels like eye roll. Yeah, right. And then it turns out, it, like, it feels like a like a fake premise or like a non-authentic premise. Uh, so I kind of feel like, I, I think I gravitate toward documentary because you're drawing out insight from the real world. So there's an authentic authenticity there that you can play around with, but is real. Whereas like coming up with a premise or I always marvel at like Alice Monroe. She just cranked out so many authentic, real gritty, perfect premises that were fascinating and interesting. And just like, and to me, that's the hardest part. Like, coming up with something that feels real and interesting and authentic. Whereas, so maybe with documentary, it's like, I feel like that work is kind of done. Sure, it, it, absolutely. It, there is a, there is an authenticity that, that may not, that you don't have to like fight for. Sure. So, so that's part of it. I think. The, the, Although at the same time, when you talk about you're doing this play, um, it's based on a real experience. So you're you're actually taking, maybe it's not the premise. Is it the premise that you're taking and turning it into this uh, no, play? I'll tell you that. So the the idea is basically, uh, <laughs> I've told enough people about it, so it's not like it's a it's a secret or anything like that. But the I, I went I dated a girl for dating is probably a very strong uh, term for what we <laughs> what we were. It was like three four weeks um over christmas into january and then she got sick and passed away um not that suddenly but like within i'd say within about six months from the last time i saw her like um just sort of discovered she had cancer it was like very bad 
wasted away and kind of passed away. And it was really sad, but it was also um, this really weird experience because I was no one in that situation. Like I was just someone she had met and we were, you know, starting maybe something like it was this really ill-defined thing because it was so fresh. And so then it became this thing of like how to stay in touch. Do I stay in touch? All that sort of stuff. And so like, I've always thought like, I guess there could be like a documentary type idea there in terms of like following that kind of like living in that kind of experience. But for me, the, the what I, the day I went to, cause she was friends with a bunch of friends that I had. Um, and so I was sort of connected to her regardless of the fact that we were, it wasn't like she could just fully disappear, I guess. Um, and so I went to the funeral with a friend of mine that knew her. And I remember having this um, weird uh, sort of idea that like, Cause I mean, I don't believe in ghosts or anything like that, but I was just like, wouldn't it be weird if I was the person that she haunted? Because like in my head, I was like, it's so strange. Like the, the last person you, I, again, we never talked about like feelings or anything like that. So like, who knows what the actual emotion was, but like, I always feel like when you're starting something, that's the first person you think of maybe sometimes. And so I was like, what if she just turned up as a ghost in my life? And so it became this idea of a guy who sort of lives with the ghost of this girl that he dated who died um, for like, like almost in this weird sort of fake domesticity. And then it becomes about, is she really a ghost? Is she not really a ghost? And he has these pills that his doctor tells him will get rid of her. And so the idea is, does he, does he want her to stay? Does it mean something? Is it mental illness? Is it, uh, and I did a bunch of research. I have a couple of friends who are, uh, uh, nurse i have a friend who's a nurse and in at cam h and so i i did a bunch of research for it and i wrote the first half of the play and i kind of wrote myself into a corner and it's been sitting on my computer for about a year and a half now mm-hmm. um, and i keep applying the fringe every year because the 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 thought process in my head is the second i have a reason to do it it will i'll finish it there's two actually that i have that i have this sort of same relationship with where i'm like i will eventually get them done um but it's interesting because when you tell the story about about Mike, my first thought, like the most interesting thing is obviously who he was, where he came from and all that sort of stuff. But there's this idea there of you not being able to trust things and like how that, that plays out. And so um, it's just, I just find the the way that people's minds work in terms of the things that connect and the things that, um, that make you want to explore those ideas are obviously very different from, um, from person to person, but do you find that the majority of your ideas are, uh, that come from genuine, like real experiences or you were saying curiosity. So is it almost like you're creating things for yourself to explore or do you think, do you feel like you find things for yourself to explore? I mean, I'm, I think the most generative things uh, for me have been whenever I've been totally like in a situation where I have no idea what's going on. Right. Like, um, where, where, where I'm super interested in systems and how systems work. Uh, hmm. I'm very curious about how the world works and if I can turn that curio if I can explore that curiosity through the tool of filmmaking, that's super interesting 
to me. That's a, that, that, that's sort of like the process I would say. Um, so part of this decentralized web uh, documentary is like, it's kind of the best of both worlds. Cause I can spend a week on an abandoned mushroom farm with a bunch of anarchist hackers right. and play around with experimental technology and learn something, then also collect material for what may be an art piece in the future, like a documentary. So I don't know. I, I think the two are hand in hand. It's funny. I do feel like, um, cause I started off more in fiction, I guess. Yeah. Um, but documentaries scratch that curiosity itch, but I, I kind of have missed fiction a little bit I'm, and I'm pondering. Uh, I was at a convention or conference a couple of years ago and this hacker, it was during the height of the cryptocurrency boom. And this hacker pulled me aside. It was just like, Hey, I know you're a documentary filmmaker, but I've got a really funny idea for a film about cryptocurrency. And he told it to me and it's fucking great. Uh, so part of me is just like, Oh, maybe I should trot that one out again. Um, cause I think I know how to do it and I can see how to do it. But again, you know, maybe it's it, cause again, it's the same thing of exploring something that's curious and interesting. It's, yeah. You gotta, it's how, it's how you scratch the itch. It's not necessarily the itch itself. Right. Uh, yeah. And I think with looking for Mike, um, the story there is also like, it just, it was sort of right near the beginning of this true crime. Yeah. Uh, boom. So it kind of, it was at the, it was at the, uh, it was at the time when that was still kind of fresh, although it's still very interesting to a lot of people. Uh, so it, 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 like the story just lends itself to it. It's sort of like a, like a no brainer kind of thing. Nice. Uh, well, let's do, uh, cause I'm, we're sort of getting towards the end here, but let's do a couple of rapid fire things. I always like to sort of hit people with, uh, with a couple quick questions about, um, just life experiences and stuff. So like, um, career wise, what's the, what's the first thing you think of when you think highlight? Uh, I worked on this show for vice for a couple of years, uh, called cyber war all about uh, hacking and geopolitics, like national security and hacking. And to me, it was a crazy show to work on. It was very intense and the timelines were crazy and, and it was really intense, but it's exactly everything I like to work on. It's like telling stories about technology and society, culture, politics. It, it was, it was the sweet spot for me. Nice. Um, what is the, like, something that you've always wanted to do that you haven't done yet? Uh, there, like, life-wise or film-wise? Um, let's go career-wise. I mean, I guess in some respect, like, the, uh, not necessarily a simple, like, a single project that you've wanted to do, like, a personal project, but, like, maybe an achievement that you are, like, you know, aiming at or a skill that you're looking to, to conquer, that kind of thing. I don't know. I always, I always feel I love experimental film and I always, whenever I'm like working on something or developing something, I'm always like combing through all the archives and looking at all these like things that I find super inspiring. Uh, and then, and then I make my films. And I'm just like, Oh, I wish they were more like these experiments. I'd love to be just one of those. I'd, lo- I'd love to have at least one project where I just do the, the ballsy experimental thing where it's like, it's a weird confounding uh, thing that's fully uh, like a bizarro experiment that 
that I could just do like wholeheartedly and not worry about like, Oh, I don't know if people are going to get this or whatever. Right. I mean, maybe I, I'm, I started getting close with uh 24 hour dolly, uh, but yeah, it was great. How many, out of curiosity, how many people did you need working on that on the 24 hour dolly? I was thinking how it, watching. Yeah. That. So how I did it was um, it's actually not as, as onerous as it sounds it, like, because we were pushing it the entire 24 hours. Right. But it's not very heavy, right? Because it's perfectly balanced. Um, but what I would do is you get people on, on shifts of like three or four hours. Not where they're pushing for three or four hours, right. but you double people up. Oh, sure. So maybe for two hours, may, usually it'd be like one or two hours. Sometimes during those weird stretches from like 5 a.m. in the morning till 7 a.m. Or when it's hard to find people, you get them on longer shifts. But if it's you and me pushing for four hours, it would just be like someone would push for like 10 minutes and then if they get bored, the other person would take over. So I think for that, we had a total of like 10 to 15 people. Wild. So. Um, all right, we're going to bring it home on two, two last questions. I don't think these are rapid or easy, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw them at you and see what we, see what we come, up, come with. So um, I think one of the things that we've kind of been building towards in terms of a lot of the questions I've been asking is, um, what do you see yourself as now? Like in the context of um, giving yourself that sort of uh, label, because I mean, I think labels, especially in today's society, are, are both a hindrance and a help. But I, find, I always find it interesting what people label themselves internally. You know what I mean? Like, I always tell people, like, when someone says, what do you do? You know, like, I'm a writer. I don't write a, lo a lot anymore. But I feel, I think of myself as a writer, I guess. Um, and so what do you, like, when you sort of, I guess, deeply internalize it. You know, are you a filmmaker? Are you an artist? Are you a creative? Like, do you think of yourself in anything that's sort of that um, simple, I guess? No, I think you're right. Because I would say, like, my knee-jerk reaction is, oh, I'm a filmmaker. But then if I start peeling away at that, I'm kind of like, well, I don't know if that's the most, I don't know if that's very helpful for me conceptually uh, in terms of determining what my life is. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I went through this very, uh, I'm currently going through this, uh, what's it all about kind of moment. Um, <laughs> Welcome to my life. <laughs> yeah. Well, so right before I turned 40, I, sp I spent a year living in and working in Singapore. Oh, wow. And uh, it was a, an amazing experience. But I was very much doing work for hire. Okay. It, like I felt as though I was doing something. And usually I'm, I've got a good balance of like I do a job for hire and then I'll do my own creative project. But I basically spent a year in Singapore working for hire and the hours were long and the, and the work was intense. And I was delivering for someone else. Right. And so I came back um, pretty exhausted after like a year of working for someone else and, and sort of like, and it had been a while since I had done anything creative. And so I was like, Oh, what, what, what am I doing with my life? What, like, am I, like, um, am I living to work or working to live or that sort of thing? So I kind of, after I got back, so that was last year or I got back about a year ago. Right. And so I spent the last year sort of like rediscovering who I am or trying to get back in touch with that creative part of me. Cause I was like, it was, it was clear to me that I can't just like 
do work for hire. Um, for sure. So, and so, so that journey has kind of been, um, the journey has sort of kind of came to sort of a natural sort of culmination with the Berlin film festival right. where I was like, okay, I think what I need to focus on is like recapturing that artist thing. Yeah. And I've sort of been unlocking that un- creative artist part of my brain again. And I think for the foreseeable future, it's going to be more filmmaking. Nice. Um, but trying to like open up that, being less doing working for hire or and or working from that mentality. Oh, that's great, man. Yeah, it's a, it's so interesting. I think I'm I'm sure I've mentioned this on a, a podcast, one of the other episodes, but I'm going to say it again because it, it does apply. It's so weird this stage of life. Like I was talking about, you know, feeling like an adult earlier and stuff. But I have this like I turned forty right at the end of December, which was both great and also just horrifying in a weird way. Uh, but it was a great time. We had a you know, I made the best of it. But um, the reason it's interesting is so my dad, when he was 50 when he passed, right? And so I've always had this weird sort of idea of like, he was 50. That's, that's the, that that's where I'm aiming at. Oh, okay, he was 50. I'm going to be, I'll, I'll make it to at least 50, theoretically, right? And so when I was 25, I was like, haha, midlife crisis, you know, and then I was 30. And I was like, well, second midlife crisis. And then I was 35. And I was like, yeah, third midlife crisis. And then when I hit 40, I went, Oh my God, this is actually midlife. And I started to have this. And then I was like, Oh no, all those other times were just me being an idiot. This is really like, uh, this is what people talk about, not crisis wise, but just in terms of that feeling of like exactly what you're saying. Like, what am I doing? What am I, where am I going forward? And all of a sudden I started to see this idea of like, well, this is midlife. Then and I'm going to make it to 80 and that's a real thing. That's another 40 years. Like this has felt like a long time. That's all this time now in front of me. And it became very real in terms of, uh, you know, sort of like that next stage of life. So it's interesting. I find it, um, it, there, there's a, a reassuring aspect to the fact that you're, we're both having a similar sort of place. I always feel like when people are, Age is such a weird thing to me. Um, sometimes I think if someone's taller than me, then they must be older than me, um, which is something I really have to get out of because very rarely does it happen anymore. Um, not that I'm tall, just I feel like everyone's younger than me. Um, but it's such a strange idea to be at this point and sort of be able to like be like, yeah, I am middle-aged, which now doesn't mean anything anymore because I feel like it's not the same thing as it was to be middle-aged 20 years ago when we were 20, you know? Um, so... On that note, I always try to ask people at the end of these things, like, what kind of advice, like, what advice do you have? You know, like, if you um, could boil it down to, um, you know, sort of tell someone, like, someone who wants to, um, you know, be creative, someone who wants to sort of, you know, produce, and I mean that in the sense of actually creating things and not being a producer, but, like, what's the best advice you can give someone or you would want to offer yourself back 20 years ago, you know? I'm trying to think because I, I feel like it's going back to this idea of trying to trying to find your own voice. But I think I, I, th- I think I think it is very important to find your own voice. But I feel like I went about it in a very literal way, like asking people, "What is my voice?" <laughs> rather than drowning out everything else, or like. Put, putting all the external noise to the side and just doing 
your own thing. It's tough though, because we work in we work in media that require an audience. Yeah. Or are best served by an audience. And that's actually the mechanism that makes our media what they are. So you don't want to make something just for uh, just for the purposes of scratching that itch in your brain. So I don't know, like if I had to, I would say the, I wish I would have had a few more failures under my belt at a certain, like earlier. I was very careful about doing, like being very careful about the projects that I pursued. Um, and I feel like the failures that I do have are not the failures that I wanted to have. That's a really interesting idea. Can you, can you, can you go into that a little bit more? Cause that's, that's a like sort of a fascinating statement. So I think the failures that I have are ones where I tried to make somebody else happy. And I feel like I, I would have gained a lot more from failures that made me happy. Interesting. Because I feel like it's very clear that if you're trying to do something for someone else and, and uh, you fail, it's because you're trying to do it for someone else. You're not, you're not, it it doesn't, it didn't come from a place of authenticity. So of course it's going to fail. But if you do something out of pure heartfelt, thoughtful uh, ambition or conviction and it fails, the lessons that you're going to learn are probably much more useful for you going ahead. Yeah. No, that's, there's, there's a very real truth to that. It's uh, I feel like you're, you're not the only person who said that in sort of regards to that question of doing things for yourself. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a very hard thing to do, especially in this, this day and age to like um, trust yourself uh in those situations where like, you know, even if this doesn't work out, at least I know that it was what I wanted and that kind yeah. of, thing. that's, yeah. no, that's, that's really good advice. Um, dude, this has been a really great conversation. I've, I've quite enjoyed catching up with you, man. Oh uh, yeah. Glad, I'm glad you're doing so well and, you know, making it through this pandemic and, uh, yeah, definitely once uh, we can all go out in the world and, and share the same environment, let's grab a beer, you know? Yeah, let's uh, do it. But, uh, dude, I can't thank you enough. This has been really great. Um, where can people find you? Where, where should they go look to, uh, to, to get more Dylan Reibling in their life? I think if they just, just Google Dylan Reibling, I'm not, I'm not great at Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or anything, but I've got a website with a bunch of my stuff on there. So don't, if you look up Dylan Reibling, it'll be DylanReibling.com. is probably a good spot. I'm trying to think. Yeah, that's usually where I announce things and put and pump, pump out my stuff. Nice. Well, all right, everyone, go check that out, and uh, we will be back next week because this shit's coming weekly now. Um, I got the the fucking motors humming. It's a weird place to be. As once we put this to bed, um, I will be two weeks uh, two weeks ahead. So let's hope that there's another one after this because. Uh, I probably need a book one um, or someone's got to get back to me and say they're going to do it. So dude, thank you so much for doing this. I, I know it was probably out of the, a little out of the blue, but um, no, no, it's awesome. I'm, glad, I'm glad you got that job with a lot and, and we were able to reconnect. Right? Ah, that's so hilarious. Your, your birthday party was in Jamaica, right? We went, yeah, we went to Jamaica in November. It was a, uh, 
we, yeah, that's right. Cause he came to that, that trip is so funny. We, uh, there were like probably 12 of us. We've all been friends for a really long time and we went and then, um, he came late and then stayed to work with you. And I remember there was this moment of, uh, uh, that I had when I was, we were going home. I didn't really say to anybody, but there was just this little moment in my head where I was like, fuck man, I really should have gotten better at freelance work like a long time ago. Cause like sweet deal. Right. Cause he stayed and you guys were there for like another week after we left, um, yeah, which I think it, paid for his whole trip, which was a pretty sweet deal. Yeah. And I worked out, it was a very intense shoot. So it was a little, it was very tough. So it was, a, and then I actually stuck around in Jamaica an extra week just to be like I'd never been before I want yeah. to travel around and it actually wasn't so like I'm used to traveling being very like fly by the seat of my pants and then sort of letting the city or the the country yeah. open up in front of me and follow follow whatever affordances are like wh- wherever it leads you yeah. but Jamaica that's actually a really tough place to do it because it's pretty dangerous so. I've, I've I've heard so I got I got into a couple of scrapes that I like like I probably shouldn't have gotten into. Everything was fine, but uh, yeah, it was interesting. It, probably the way you guys did it was was the smart way to do it. Yeah, <laughs> I I hadn't been away for a while, so like whenever when they were talking about, it, I was just like, I just want to sit on a beach. I don't care about anything else. Um, and then there was a pandemic now, so who's who's ever going to travel again? Um, so we really should have. You did it the right way, I think. You got those experiences, whereas I got really sunburned. But not that I'm complaining. It was a fantastic. It was a good week, good week we had. But uh, but yeah, those experiences stay with you, dude. Thank you so very much for doing this, man. This was really good. Yeah, um, no thanks problem. for listening to you folks at home. And uh, like I said, we'll be back next week. Have a good night and wash those hands. Mm-hmm.